Let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to um, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And I'll pick up reading at verse 35. Mark, chapter 1. Now, in the morning, having, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues, throughout all Galilee, and casting out demons. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your holy word. What a precious gift you have given to us. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would help us as we peer into the word and seek to open up the scriptures. Give us understanding. May we be directed and corrected and encouraged. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I was thinking about this conference and the theme of the conference being the example of Christ. And uh, sometimes, normally, what I, not always, what I like to do is kind of wait and let everybody else pick out their topics before, and I kind of wait till the last, you know, not always, but because I can't make up my mind what to do. There's so many possibilities of things that you could address that are related from year to year to whatever the theme is. But as I was doing that this year and I got to thinking about the things that had been chosen and uh, I thought about this question uh, of all the responsibilities that come with being a pastor, what two are perhaps the most important? What two must have priority over all the rest? What, what would you say to that? Well, I hope you would say prayer and the ministry of the word. And I hope you would say that because there are definitely these are definitely the two priorities established by the apostles at the very beginning of the Christian church. You remember the occasion, the appointment of the, the first deacons in Acts chapter six. The deacons were appointed to administer the uh, benevolence and the physical needs of the congregation. But said the apostles who were also at that time functioning as, as elders of the church in Jerusalem, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer and the ministry of the word. Prayer and preaching are primary and must never be neglected. Well, I've chosen this passage in Mark's gospel as a kind of launching pad, uh, a launching point for my message is in this conference because it points us to both of these priorities as we see them in the life of the Lord Jesus. In this passage, we catch a glimpse first of the prayer life of Christ. Verse 35, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed. And then we catch a glimpse of his preaching ministry 
after his disciples looked for him and find him, what did Jesus say? Verse 38, but he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee. So here is Jesus both praying and preaching. Well, in this first message, I want to, as has already been hinted at, to focus on the prayer life of the Lord Jesus as an example for us as pastors. Now, I have to admit that I, I do this with a bit of reluctance. Uh, there's something frightful uh, to me about preaching to a group of fellow pastors on the subject of prayer. And I say that because even as I was preparing this message, I felt greatly convicted of my own failures in this area as a Christian pastor. And I'm not standing here this morning to lecture you in the pejorative sense of the word, to lecture you men with a feeling of superiority, but as a man who struggles in this area myself, and as a man who has prayed in my preparations that looking at the prayer life of Christ will first of all help me to become a more faithful and effective, be more, uh, more faithful and effective in prayer, as well as you, my brothers, and as someone, I think it was Bart mentioned a moment ago, uh, preaching on prayer can be very convicting, but my purpose is not just to convict us and to, as it were, drive us into the ground, but to point us to the possibilities of what the grace of Christ can help us to do and to grow in, and also that we'll be driven to seek his help to become more like the Lord Jesus himself in the area of prayer. Several years ago, Joel Beakey gave an address at the Desiring God Conference on cultivating prayer as a pastor. And there was something he said in that address that especially struck me. He said that when he went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia for his doctorate and enrolled in the post-Reformation coursework, that while immersing himself in Luther and Calvin and the other reformers, he became convinced that the big difference between them and us, reformed pastors today, is in this matter of prayer. He said, and I quote, if you read their sermons, well, the sermons aren't that much different than ours. I mean, maybe they're a bit better, but we're saying the same things. It was their prayer life which arrested me. And I said, this is the secret as to why their times were so often so much more blessed and their ministries were so much more blessed than ours. Note, our sermons, he said, are not much different from theirs, but when it comes to their prayer life. We tend to lag far behind them. It was Luther's habit to spend two hours a day alone with God in private devotion in prayer. Philip Melanchthon once came around a corner and he overheard Luther praying and he just stopped and listened to him praying. And then he went back and he wrote these words in his diary. Gracious God, what faith, what spirit, what reverence. And yet with what holy familiarity did Master Martin pray? Calvin also was a man of prayer. He wrote in one of his commentaries, It is good to have certain hours appointed for prayer, not because we're tied to hours, but unless we would ever become unmindful of prayer. Uh, John Welsh, some of you may have heard of him, the Scottish reformer, uh, son-in-law of John Knox, prayed several hours a day. His wife said of him after he died that he left the robe beside his bed and never a night went past that he didn't get up in the middle of the night and go out into the cold side room and begin to pour out his soul to God in prayer. 
And there was actually an occasion when his wife followed him. She was afraid he would catch a cold or get pneumonia and she wouldn't dare enter into the room. It was too sacred. But she said she uh, she said, but she called out to him, John, don't you think you should come to bed? And he called back through the door. Oh, my dear, I've got three thousand souls to care for. And I know not how it is with many of them. Once he was praying in the middle of the night and she overheard him pleading with God, Lord, give me Scotland, give me Scotland, give me Scotland. And I could go on with examples like this, not just with the reformers. We see this with many of the Puritans and examples like this could be multiplied beyond the Puritans on through the period of the 18th century revivals and to more recent times. Indeed, Bethan Lloyd-Jones, the wife of Martin Lloyd-Jones, said this about her husband. You can't understand my husband as an evangelist or an expositor unless you understand, first of all, he was a man of prayer. Brothers, when you read about the lives of godly ministers who are used of God down through the history of the church, it's interesting to note there are many differences. Very different personalities, different gifts, different levels of education, different strengths and weaknesses, differences in economic status and upbringing. There are many, many differences, but there is one common denominator. When it comes to those God has used in mighty ways, they were all men who were committed to a life of prayer. And of course, the most eminent example of this is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. The study of the prayer life of Christ is very inspiring and, and instructive. It could be the subject of an entire series of sermons. And all I can hope to do in this one message is just to give something of a survey. And as we begin to consider this, let's take note, first of all, this would be point one, that the Lord Jesus was indeed a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. We have an example of this here in our text. And we have many other examples of Jesus praying in the gospel records. We see him praying at his baptism, Luke 3, 21. We see him withdrawing into the wilderness to pray, Luke 5, 16. After feeding the 5,000, he sent the multitudes away and he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. Mark 6, 46, we're told that he spent the whole night in prayer before the selection of the 12 apostles, Luke 6, 12. He was praying just before Peter's great confession, Luke 9, 18. He was praying on the Mount of Transfiguration when the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening, Luke 9, 28 to 29. He had been praying in a certain place when one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. They had seen him pray. They heard him pray. And this disciple was so moved by Jesus' prayer, so impressed, no doubt, with the reverence, the freedom, the urgency, the fullness, and the content of his prayers that he desired Jesus to teach them how to pray like that. And as has been pointed out many times, we never find the disciples asking Jesus to teach them to preach or to heal, but they do ask him to teach them to pray. The Lord Jesus prayed at Gethsemane before going to the cross. He often prayed alone in a solitary place, as we see here in our opening text. He also sometimes prayed with and in the company of his disciples. There are, there are prayers of praise and thanksgiving. Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, for example. We have prayers of intercession. 
He said to Peter, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And then in terms of intercessory prayers, we have that great high priestly prayer for his people in John 17. So there are many examples of Jesus praying recorded for us in the Gospels. The Lord Jesus was a man of prayer. Uh, but this immediately raises a question. Why did Jesus need to pray? I mean, he's God. God the Son. Why does he pray? Was he just doing this to be an example for us? Well, his praying is intended to be an example for us, but it's more than that. No, when we ask the question, why did Jesus pray? The answer is because it was necessary for him to pray. And for many of the same reasons, it's necessary for us to pray. You see, here we are brought face to face with the reality of our Lord's true humanity. Christ was not half God and half man. He was perfectly God. But at the same time, he was perfectly and truly human. This is the great mystery of the incarnation. And as a man, our Lord placed himself in a position of absolute dependence upon and submission to the Father. As you read in Philippians 2, 6 and following, though he was equal with God, equal with the Father, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He became obedient to whom? To the Father. You see, Jesus, as a man, voluntarily assumed a position of dependence upon the Father. And that's why you keep hearing Him say things like this throughout the course of His public ministry. John 5, 19, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do. John 6, 39, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. He lived in dependence upon the Father, and He lived therefore as a man by faith and as a man of prayer, just as you and I are to do. He didn't pray just to be an example for us. He prayed because he must pray. Now, there are some parts of prayer Jesus had no need of. For example, he never needed to engage in personal confession of sin in his prayers, as we do. He had no sin. The petition, forgive us our trespasses, though it's a petition necessary for him to teach us to pray, is something he never needed to pray for himself. He never needed to go before God in self-examination to review his sins of the past day and to confess them or to seek grace from God to increasingly mortify them, as you and I very, very much need to do. He was perfectly holy, undefiled, and separate from sin. But he still needed to pray to pray for the blessing of the Spirit upon His ministry, to pray for wisdom and strength to overcome temptation, to maintain as a man His life of devotion to the Father. It was an answer to prayer that He was enabled to fulfill the work and every specific part of the work the Father gave Him to do. Now, there's something comforting in this. It brings, I think it brings our Lord, and it does bring our Lord very close to us, as one of us, a true human in every way. But there's another lesson here. Quoting James Stalker, who was referred to his book, The Example of Christ, which, again, it's hard to find it, but you can download an e-book -cop e copy of it uh, from the Internet. Excellent, thought-provoking book. But quoting James Stalker, Although a man 
Jesus was a sinless man, yet he needed prayer and resorted to it continually. What a commentary on our need of it, being what he was, how much we need it, being what we are. Dear brothers, we need to, we need to feel the weight of this. If our sinless Lord must pray, how much more must we pray? If Jesus could not accomplish the work He was given to do as our Savior without continual prayer, how much more is this the case with us? If as a man He must commune with the Father in prayer, seek wisdom in prayer, seek strength to carry out His tasks in prayer, seek the blessing of God upon His labors and the salvation of His hearers by prayer, if Jesus must do that, how much more must we and how much more especially must we who are ministers of the gospel? In Spurgeon's lectures to my students, uh, I find the opening lines of his chapter on the preacher's private prayer. Very searching. Here are the opening lines. He says, of course, the preacher is above all others distinguished as a man of prayer. Of course, he said. He continues, he prays as an ordinary Christian, else he were a hypocrite. He prays more than an ordinary Christian, else he were disqualified for the office which he has undertaken. He prays as an ordinary Christian, he says, else he were a hypocrite, a pastor who's entirely prayerless, entirely prayerless, or who rarely prays with any degree of regularity at all, not only is neglecting his office, he has good reason to question if he has ever been converted to begin with. If I might quote one of our, one of our own, Greg Nichols, a prayerless person is ungrateful because he does not thank God. He's self-righteous because he doesn't confess his sins to God. He's self-centered because he doesn't ask God to bless other people. He's presumptuous because he doesn't pray for his daily needs. He's irreverent because he does not praise God, nor pray for his kingdom to come. And he's unfriendly to God because his prayerlessness is evidence he doesn't enjoy God. Now back to Spurgeon's introduction to his chapter on the preacher's prayer life. He says he prays as an ordinary Christian, else he were a hypocrite. But then he goes further. He prays more than ordinary Christians, else he were disqualified for the office he has undertaken. Now, what do you think about that statement? Is that too, too strong, a statement? Well, at least, certainly, brothers, if our calling in life is to shepherd God's people and to preach the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to deal with matters that have at stake the eternal destinies of the souls of men, not to mention the care of the church, and the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. Surely, if this is the calling to which we have been called and have devoted our lives, at the very least we can say that it ought to be, it ought to be true of us, each one of us, that not only do we pray as ordinary true Christians do, but we pray more than ordinary true Christians do, as Spurgeon put it. Dear men, prayer must be a non-negotiable priority in our lives and ministries, whatever the cost. Acts 6.4, which I referenced earlier, speaks of two priorities, prayer and the ministry of the Word. But you'll notice it's prayer that is mentioned first. Perhaps because without prayer, our study of God's Word will be greatly lacking in spiritual light and, 
and insight, and our preaching of God's Word will be largely barren of any lasting and eternal fruit. Quoting from the book, the wonderful book, if you don't have it, you should get it and read it, by Charles Bridges, The Christian Ministry. He writes, Many can set their seal to Luther's testimony that he often obtained more knowledge in a short time of prayer than by many hours of study. Living near the fountainhead of influence, we shall be in constant receipt of fresh supplies of light, support, and consolation to assist us in our duties, to enable us for our difficulties, and to assure us of our present acceptance and a suitable measure of ultimate success. So, my first point is this, simply the fact that Jesus was indeed a man of prayer. But now in the time remaining, I want to zero in on some of the occasion, occasions in which we find the Lord Jesus doing so and what we can learn from them. Now, uh, as with evangelism, what a wonderful message that, that was. What a, what, a, what a picture of the heart of Christ and His evangelistic burden and how He took every opportunity to seek to reach people with the gospel. I was really moved by that message and thank the Lord for it. And the uh, same way with prayer. There's so many examples, so many occasions that we could look at. All of them are instructive, but obviously we don't have time to look at all of them. Prayer was our Lord's daily practice, as it should be for us. And there were always many things to be praying about. And again, the same is true of us. But I want to zero in on a couple of situations in which we find Jesus giving himself to prayer. And let's look first of all at our opening text, Mark 1, 35. Let me read it again. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now let me say something about the context. Of course, the life of Jesus during his earthly ministry was always busy. But this particular day in which this occurred, or, or that was prior to this, this was the climax of, this day had been quite a day for him and his disciples. It was a wonderful day. It was a very busy time doing good things. How did this day start? Well, it starts up in verse 21 of this chapter. Then they, Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And Mark likes to use this word, as you know, immediately throughout his gospel. It shows us that, that Jesus was a man on the move. He was always busy, active, engaged in the work that he was given to do. And the day described in this chapter was a particularly busy day. It was the Sabbath. It begins with him teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And wow, what a, what a service it was that day. It, it, was something, it was unlike anything these people had ever experienced or had ever heard. They were astonished, it says, at his teaching. Verse 22. And there was something else amazing and even shocking that happened at church that day. There was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit who began to cry out during the service. And Jesus cast a demon out of the man. And immediately, Mark says, his fame spread 
throughout all the region around Galilee. The news of what had just happened at church spread like wildfire. Well, as soon as Jesus left the synagogue, he went to Simon Peter's house with Peter and some of the other disciples. But this didn't turn out to be an ordinary, restful Sabbath dinner time. Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever, and Jesus is told, and he heals her. And then before the day is over, people started showing up at the house, and folks are bringing to Jesus all who are sick and those who are demon-possessed, and we're told that the whole city was gathered at the door. So throughout that evening then, Jesus is busy healing the sick, casting out demons, counseling as it were, and so on. It was an extremely busy day, and it was a wonderful day, a blessing upon our Lord's ministry. Now, it might seem reasonable after a day like that for Jesus to just sleep in a little bit. And let me just, by the way, say that's a good idea for us to do that sometimes. Sometimes we need to take a break and maybe sleep in a little bit. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. But on this occasion, what did Jesus do? We're told in the text, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Try to imagine <clears throat> Jesus crawling out of bed, the wee hours of the morning, very early, it's still dark outside, a long while before daylight, the text says. The others are lying here and there asleep in the house. You can hear Peter snoring, and Jesus quietly slips out the door, he goes down the alley or along the street, turns out into a nearby field or heads up on a hill and into a grove of trees perhaps just outside the city, and he finds a quiet, secluded spot where he can be completely alone. And there he pours out his heart to God and gives himself to an extended time of prayer. And Jesus often prayed alone like this. He prayed alone like this, no doubt, in order not to be seen by men. He was praying to his father in secret that his father might reward him openly, even as he teaches us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Praying in secret. Maybe in a solitary place outside, like Jesus here in our text, or in a private room with a door shut, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount. It might be on, in your study. It might be on your back porch. The exact place is not what's important, but what's important is finding somewhere where you can be alone with God. Indeed, whatever public prayers we might pray, and however well we might pray them, whether in prayer meetings or leading public worship, if it's not your habit to pray in secret, my dear brother, or only God can see, there's good reason to question whether those public prayers are worth very much. The Pharisees were big on praying publicly before men, but one of the things that marked them out as hypocrites is they rarely prayed with the same devotion in private. So Jesus goes early in the morning, to a solitary place to pray. Probably another reason he did this was so he could pray out loud. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with praying silently. In fact, I think praying silently has, has some real benefits to it. It allows us to pray anywhere and at any time, to pray sometimes with groans and, and desires, expressing secret thoughts and burdens of the heart that it's hard to put into words. But sometimes it's a great help to pray out loud. 
Now, I'm sure many of you have found this to be the case. It's easier for the mind to, to drift when you're praying silently in your heart, but praying out loud can be a great help to keeping up concentration and also being alone can allow more freedom without the fear of, of the embarrassment of others hearing your prayers as you express those private concerns that only God needs to hear. Perhaps on this occasion, Jesus prayed in both ways, sometimes with his voice, at other times silently. And what do you think Jesus was praying about? Well, it's not hard to imagine some of the things he probably prayed about. No doubt he prayed for grace and strength to do the work that was before him, a work that was increasing and it was becoming more and more demanding at this point in his public ministry, the work the Father had given him to do. No doubt he prayed for guidance. Should I stay here or should I move on to some of the other towns that I might preach there also, as he in fact ends up doing? I imagine him praying for his disciples as we see him doing on other occasions and for those who are already believing in him, that they might be protected from the evil one, that they might grow in grace and godliness, that they might be fully prepared and equipped for the great work that would be theirs after our Lord left them. Surely he prayed for the salvation of sinners, for saving fruit among the people. Remember, this is the same Jesus who wept over Jerusalem. And I can imagine him that night earnestly crying to God for the souls of men. And brothers, do we not need to pray for the same things? Do we not have the same things to pray about? Do you pray for these things? Do, do you set apart seasons of prayer to give yourself for lengthy, uninterrupted periods of time to crying to God? for the people under your care, crying to God for conversions under your ministry. No doubt it was Jesus' habit to engage in the, ha uh, the practice of daily prayer on a daily basis. But here we see what I think we can call a special season of prayer. And he engages in this prolonged time of very early morning prayer at a time, I want you to note these two things, when he was extremely busy and also at a time when he had just experienced great blessing upon his ministry. So let's think about those two things. Those two things. First of all, it was a time of great busyness. Great busyness. And this is not the only example of him engaging in special prayer at a time like that. We read in Luke 5, 13 and 14, the report went around concerning him all the more. And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed of their infirmity, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. The crowds are coming to hear him and to be healed. Great multitudes, the needs, the, the opportunities, the pressures of the work are becoming greater. And as we see in our original text, they're all looking for him. People are surrounding the house. The pressure of the work. So what does he do? He prays. He often withdrew into the wilderness to pray. Here he, he goes out. He goes away into the night and he prays to the Father. It's, you know, it's not uncommon for someone to say, and perhaps I've said it and perhaps we've all said it. I've just been too busy lately to pray. I'm just so busy. The pressures of the ministry, the time constraints I'm under. I just don't have time to pray. More than just a few minutes here and there. But my dear brothers, it's especially at times like that, that you need to pray. The more you have to do, 
the more you need to pray. That's what we see in the life of Jesus. Luther understood this. You've probably heard the story of what he once said to Melanchthon, I have so much to do today, I must spend the first three hours in prayer. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting you spend three hours in prayer, but the point is, the more busy we are, and I'm talking about legitimately busy, not busy with things that are just wasting our time, but when you're in a season when the legitimate, necessary responsibilities of your ministry are unusually demanding, not the less, but the more time you need to give to prayer. This is what we see in Jesus' example. Now, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? It would seem more logical to say, I have so much to do today, I can't pray. Or I need to cut back all my prayers today. But we shouldn't think like that. Jesus didn't think like that. No, the more I have to do, the more I have to pray about. The more I have to do, the more I need God's help. The more I need His wisdom. The more I need His power and His strength to uphold me. The more I need His guidance. The more I need grace to help me to keep calm and composed instead of being overcome by a frantic anxiety under all the pressures. Therefore, the more I need to pray, the more careful I need to be to be disciplined in the way I organize my days so as to have better time for prayer. Listen to James Stalker commenting on this example of Jesus and its relevance for us. He writes, many know what this congestion of occupations is. They are swept off their feet with their engagements and can scarcely find time to eat. We make this a reason for not praying. Jesus made it a reason for praying. Is there any doubt which is the better course? A wise man once said that he was too busy to be in a hurry. He meant that if he allows himself to become hurried, he could not do all that he had to do. There is nothing like prayer for producing this calm self-possession when the dust of busyness so fills your room that it threatens to choke you. Sprinkle it with the water of prayer, and then you can cleanse it out with comfort and ex expedition. And I immediately think of uh, Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto the Lord, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But this is important not only in a time of unusual busyness, but as was the case here in our opening text, in a time when you've experienced a measure of great blessing on your ministry. The danger then is to become prideful or careless, to fail to keep watch against the wiles of the devil. Times of blessing can be dangerous times for the pastors. So it was at such a time we find Jesus giving himself to a special season of extended prayer. And again, this is not the only place that we see this. You remember after the feeding of the 5,000, we're told in John chapter 6 that the people began saying, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And, and therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and to take him and to make him king, what did he do? It says he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Matthew gives us a little more detail. He says he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Our Lord was aware of the temptations of success and of a 
fickle human praise to cause him to deviate from his mission and to bypass the cross. And if blessing upon his ministry and the accolades of men were a danger for him, they are a thousand times more dangerous for us. There's the intoxicating influence of pride. <clears throat> Ministerial pride is a terrible, ugly thing. Especially as we see it in ourselves. We start believing the press. Everyone is praising me. What a wonderful preacher you are, pastor. What a great sermon. You are truly the great prophet who has come into the world. Look at how God is blessing the church right now. I'm so thankful that we have such a wonderful pastor. And if you're not careful, you actually begin to believe it. <laughs> I really am a wonderful pastor. These blessings are indeed because of how gifted and wise I am. Now, if only others could see it on a wider sphere as... My people do. Maybe I can help them see it by demonstrating my superiority with attention-getting Facebook posts. Ah, huh, look at all the likes I got. Let me check and see the comments. Wow, some good ones. Oh, thank you so much for your post. I'm, I'm so glad there are men like you who are so sound theologically and so wise. I, I love your post. Blah, 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 blah. And now your head really begins to swell. What's my point? Times when people are praising you or times of blessing on your ministry. They're, they're wonderful times. There's not anything wrong with them. But there are also times when you especially need to give yourself to special prayer. Now is one of those times when you especially must watch and pray lest you enter into temptation and fall into the snare of the devil. Cry to God to keep you humble. We should all cry to God to keep us humble. Plead with Him to help you to keep your head. Get before the God who knows everything about you. People may say what they will, but He knows the truth. And you know He knows the truth, that you're not really all that wonderful after all. You know what I am, Lord. I'm a wretched, weak, foolish sinner who deserves nothing but hell. Don't let me forget that. Don't let me forget that any blessing upon my work is not because of me. It's all of your grace. And all the glory belongs to you alone. But then let me point us to one other type of situation in which we see the Lord Jesus giving himself to a special season of prayer. There are others we could look at, for example, a time of peculiar temptation like we see at Gethsemane. We could also talk about times when our ministry is not especially being blessed. But I only have time for one more. So turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Picking up at verse 12 of Luke chapter 6. Now it came to pass in those days he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. <clears throat> so here we see that Jesus 
Before he chose 12 men to be his apostles, he spent the whole night in prayer. Now, this is the only example we have in the New Testament of our Lord spending a whole night in prayer. And notice uh, he went out to the mountain to pray. Again, a place where he could be alone, undisturbed, a place where he could give his full concentration to prayer with the least amount of distractions. Perhaps he prayed audibly part of the time, silently part of the time. He may have also paused from time to time to contemplate, to, to think about the issues and the concerns that were before him. Perhaps he carefully considered each one of the many disciples individually who were following him at the time, their characters, their personalities, their characteristics, their strengths, their weaknesses, while bringing each one before the Father, seeking the Father's will as to who is to be chosen to be apostles. Wouldn't you like to have been there on that mountain that night, watching Jesus and listening to Jesus while he prayed? So we see here that Jesus, in addition to the regular habit of prayer, on occasion set aside special extended seasons of prayer, and we ought to do that from time to time as well. He didn't always, and I would imagine he very rarely prayed all night, but on this occasion he did. And presumably it was because of the tremendous uh, issues that were at stake in, in the decisions, the decisions and the choices that were to be made the very next day. Now, none of us are required, <coughs> required to pray that long as a general rule. I think few of us could do it with profit. It might be harmful for some of you if you did, due to the present state of your physical health. It would certainly not be the best for any of us to do so on a regular basis. We have other duties and responsibilities, and ordinarily it's wise to make sure you're getting enough sleep. We're to live balanced Christian lives, balancing work and service and family responsibilities, and adequate rest with acts of personal devotion and private devotion. We're not to live like monks who do nothing but pray and read the Bible all the time. Also, the length of our prayer is not the most important thing. It's the sincerity of our prayers that is most important. But with all of those qualifications, at the same time, whether all-nighters, whole afternoons, setting aside a couple of hours or three, sometimes it's good, it's very good to set apart time for special extended seasons of prayer, as we see our Lord doing again here in this text. And especially, especially when you find yourself facing important, life-changing, family-affecting, or ministry-shaping decisions. It was when Jesus faced this momentous decision of choosing the 12 apostles that he spent the whole night in prayer. Brothers, are we not guilty at times? I confess I've been guilty at times of deciding to do something or making decisions about something that has to do with the church or its ministries when in fact we haven't prayed about it at all or very little. May the Lord forgive us. Now, this doesn't mean that if we, we really give ourselves to pray about this particular issue or problem in the church or this decision, it doesn't mean that uh, we're to expect that God is somehow going to give us a vision of what we should do or that the Holy Spirit will whisper in your ear some kind of direct revelation from God. 
No, but when you're facing important decisions in your ministry or serious problems in the church, together with thinking and, and asking questions about it and seeking wise counsel from your fellow elders and perhaps from other men and studying the situation as best you can, you also need to pray seriously and earnestly for God to help you, for God to help you to carefully weigh all the various considerations in an unbiased manner, to help you to see where any teaching of Scripture you haven't thought of may apply to this question or to this issue, or how this may affect your relationship to Christ and affect the congregation you serve, and ask Him to help you to see anything that you might be missing. And then having done that, brothers, then you must trust God. Not wait for God to zap you, but you can make a decision. Trusting that God will help you if it is indeed your chief desire to honor Him. That doesn't mean there won't be problems along the way. I remember way back when I was pastoring in Easley, we bought a church building and uh, we had a family in our church that were real nervous about things like that. We'd been meeting in an old steel building for years and, you know, we'd checked it out. We'd done our homework and, you know, we, we made it. We thought we made a reasonable decision based on principle and we bought this church building and they were still frantic that what if this happens? What if that happens? And I remember saying, you know, if we bought that church building, we moved into it on Sunday and the next day the roof fell in, I would still be convinced we made the right decision because the decisions made on principle. We've sought God's direction in prayer. We sought to weigh the principles of Scripture and, and common sense and making a decision. And sometimes you make the right decision, but things don't turn out too well. Sometimes people think if you make a decision, some bad things happen. That means you made the wrong decision. But that's not always true. Sometimes it's part of God's will and God's plan for us to experience painful trials and disappointments. But if you belong to Jesus Christ, and as best you know your heart, you truly desire, and you're seeking only in whatever His will is and the important ministry decisions that you make, He will not play games with you. He will be with you. And He will help you as you seek that help from him in prayer. But if I am a man, a pastor, who leads my church and makes important ministry decisions without earnestly seeking the face of God in prayer, I should not be surprised if my foolish, self-confident trust in my own wisdom leads to serious mistakes, if not disasters, that will later be regretted. And let me apply this to those of you who are preparing for the ministry. And there's a significant number of men here in that category among us this, uh, this year. You're in the midst of your studies. Do you bathe your studies in prayer? Or perhaps you're uncertain of what God's plan might be for you. Am I to be a pastor who preaches the word, who labors in word and doctrine? Of course, you're to seek the input of others in making those kinds of decisions, but you need to be praying about that. Or am I more suited to being a supporting elder in a church? Or perhaps Christ would have me to serve out on the mission field. And if so, where should I set my sights? Or perhaps you're anticipating being ordained and set apart to the ministry very soon. My friend, are you praying? about these things? Seriously, earnestly, perhaps even setting aside special seasons of prayer to seek God's help, His guidance, to seek the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit upon whatever work you're about to undertake. Listen as I read this entry from the journal 
of David Brainerd. He said, I set apart this day for fasting and prayer to God for His grace, especially to prepare me for the work of the ministry, to give me divine aid and direction in my preparations for that great work, and in His own time to send me out into His harvest. Do you set aside times like that for a focused season of prayer for grace to prepare you for the work of the ministry? As Brainerd puts it, for divine aid and direction in your preparation for that great work. Listen to Brainerd's description of his experience that day. He said, I felt the power of intercession for precious immortal souls, for the advancement of the kingdom of my dear Lord and Savior in the world. And with all, a most sweet resignation and even consolation and joy in the thought of suffering hardships, distresses, and even death itself in the promotion of it. My soul was drawn out very much for the world, for multitudes of souls. I think I had more enlargement for sinners than for the children of God, though I felt as if I could spend my life in cries for both. I enjoyed great sweetness in communion with my dear Savior. I think I never in my life felt such an entire weanedness from this world and so much resigned to God in everything. May God grant that all of us might know more of what it is to pray like that. Ardent wrestling with God for our people, for the salvation of sinners, for the work of God in the church and in the world. Great sweetness of communion with our Father and with our dear Savior. As I close, brothers, these considerations are not intended to cause us to wallow in guilt but to remind us afresh of the importance of prayer, to encourage us with respect to the possibilities of what Christ can enable us to do better and to grow in. The, pro the proper response to this sermon this morning is not merely to say, well, you know, I need to try harder. That's not the proper response. The response is to confess our failures and our sins in this area and to believe in Him whose blood cleanses us from all of our sins, to be thankful for His mercy to us and all of our failures, even as Christian pastors in this area of prayer. And from that posture of confident faith in the gospel, ask Him and trust Him for the grace to begin to change and then begin to do it. Prayer is not easy. It's often a great struggle Sometimes we're ashamed of our prayers, aren't we? But keep at it, and the Lord will help you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the blessed example of our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray you would help us to be more like him, and especially in light of this message, when it comes to our prayer life as men of God. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.